Father, we thank you and praise you that you love us. Even though you know all about our unholiness and our lack of love, uh, you have loved us and made us holy through Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. As people who have been redeemed, we pray now that we would live lives of holiness and love and that you would strengthen us as we look at your word today to look at our hearts, to look at whatever area you want us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians here in the sermon series that we're doing at Cornerstone. Last Sunday in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, we saw a prayer for love and holiness. It's this wonderful little prayer. It's, I, I love these prayers that we see in the Bible, and this one kind of was, was hidden from me for a while because I don't know why, just kind of right in the middle of the book. But this fantastic prayer for love and holiness. And today, as we move into the next section in chapter 4, we're going to continue on these same themes of holiness and love. We're going to see how we are called to live holy lives set apart from sin and how we are called to grow in our love for one another. And the reason that we are commanded to grow in our holiness and our love is because, like I said last Sunday, God is holy and God is love. And because God is holy and because we were created in his image and because God is reshaping us into the image of Christ, we are to live holy lives. And the same thing goes with love. God is love. We are in his image, and God is reshaping us to be like Christ, so we are to grow in our love. Think about it this way. In the gospel message, that's the message in which we see that we are called to live a new life. In the gospel message, we recognize that it was our sin that stood in the way of our relationship with God, that, that we were not holy, that we had not loved as we should. We were, we were separated from God and on a course that would have led us to be separated from him forever. But God, in his love sent Jesus Christ for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin penalty upon himself. So think about that. We see the holiness of God there, that our sin had to be punished. That God in his wisdom allowed our sin to be punished in the body of Jesus Christ. But at the cross, we also see this amazing picture of love because Jesus had no sin of his own to be punished for. He was perfect, yet he willingly took our sin upon himself. It was the love of God that saved us. And then, as we see in the Gospel story, Jesus died, our sin was paid for, but he also was raised again victoriously. And the Bible is very clear that because Jesus lives again in a new life, we have a new life to live in him as well. Now, in this new life that we are called to live in him, should we just go back to that old way of life then? That, that old way of life, which is what sent Jesus to the cross, should we now say, well, I've been forgiven from that, maybe I'll just go back to it and hope that God will forgive me again. That, that should not be our heart attitude, should it? We know that God is merciful and kind and compassionate and, and just and loving, but as those who have been rescued from sin and death, our heart attitude should be to say, that old way of life is dead to me now. I have a new way of life to live in Jesus Christ. And in this new way of life that we have to live, it should be marked at every turn by holiness and love. That should define who we are. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to live the new lives that God purchased for us. So when the gospel comes to us, we are changed. That's one of the main themes that I've been trying to point out to you from the book of 1 Thessalonians, that when the gospel takes root or root, or however you want to say it, when it takes root in us, it has a powerful impact to change us. So we shouldn't just settle for the way life used to be. We shouldn't just say, oh, well, I guess I'm always destined to fall into these same sins. 
No, we have a new life to live in Jesus Christ. So Paul wrote this part of the book of 1 Thessalonians, I think, to encourage the believers there and to encourage us to grow in holiness and in love. Let me read the first two verses from our passage today. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So, Paul gave instructions for these people how to live a life pleasing to God. But I also want you to notice that he says the people were already living that way. So he wasn't writing to chastise them, but to encourage them to keep going, to keep growing in holiness, as we'll see, and in love, as we'll see a little later. So in the rest of my sermon today, I want to look at verses 3 through 12, and we're going to break it into two sections. The first section will deal with growth in holiness, and then the second section will deal with growth in love. But before we get into that first section on holiness, I want to make a few comments about what specific topic we're going to cover, the topic of sexual immorality and lust. That's what shows up right away in verse 3 and uh, in verse 5 as well. So a few, few comments before we jump into those topics. First, I want to have you look ahead to verse 8, and I, see that, I want you to see that when Paul gave this message, he didn't see that it was just coming from him, that it was coming from God. So that the message that you're about to hear today, not, not just my words, but, but God's word as we see them here, this is the message from God. So don't just say, all oh, that pastor he doesn't know what he's talking about. I want you to hear what God's word says about these topics. Uh, it's not like I woke up one day this week and said, hey, what should we talk about in church? I know, sexual immorality and lust. That'll be fun. No, for goodness sake, my mom goes to this church. I said, that's, not how I, that's not what I think of as fun. Um, I'm preaching on this topic today because it's in the Bible. So I picked this... First Thessalonians sermon series in, in large part because I think it has some great things to say about how we can live on mission in this world, sharing the gospel, loving people around us. But part of this message is that we were called away from that old life and into a new life. So Paul, as he gets to chapter 4, as he's encouraging these people, he thought it worthwhile to, to address this topic of sexual morality and lust. So we're going to do that today. Uh, it's not like we preach through First Thessalonians and then we see the word sexual morality, so I say, oh, we'll just skip over that and go to the next one. No, that's not what we do. We listen to whatever God's word says. Okay, a second comment, and this one is for those of you kids who are still in the room. It, it's good for you to hear what the Bible says about sex because this world will say lots and lots and lots of things about sex. You will hear it, whether it's in TV or movies or on the internet or from your friends, you will get lots and lots of unbiblical messages, and it's good for you to hear what the Bible's message is on this topic. And that leads into a third comment, which is uh, just right along those same lines of what I just said to the kids. We live in a world that has a very skewed idea about sex, and we need to understand what kind of culture we live in. And one thing that I would say about our culture is that it is obsessed with sex. And rarely is it talking about sex in marriage. It's almost always talking about some form, of, some form of adultery or fornication or lust. That's the world we live in. Our culture has become so permissive. I think we can all agree on that, right? Our, our culture has become so permissive in the area of sexual immorality. So has God's word changed? No. 
So we need to people who understand what God's word says as we live in this twisted culture. And then a fourth comment. Holiness has to do with more than just avoiding sexual immorality. Uh, but our passage today, just for some reason, focuses mainly on that topic. So that's the topic we're going to cover today. But there are lots of other ways that we could live holy lives. So just because our passage doesn't talk about them today, that doesn't mean we're off the hook in areas like selfishness or jealousy or anger or pride or greed or any other thing that could be uh, considered unholy. So, having said those things, let's now take a look at verses 3 through 8 as we look at this topic of holiness and specifically in regard to sexual immorality. Starting in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So right away in verse 3, we're told there to avoid sexual immorality. And look why we're supposed to do it. Because it says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now don't get scared off by that word sanctified. It's just a word that means made holy. So the very reason that we're talking about this topic of sexual immorality is because God wants to make us holy. And you know, we all want God's will in our life, right? At least I hope that that's what we would all say. We want God's will. Well, he tells us what his will is right here, that we would avoid sexual immorality. Words for holy are going to show up, uh, right? It's behind that word sanctify. They'll also show up in verse 4 and verse 7, as well as in verse 8 when it talks about the Holy Spirit. And the idea behind holiness is God's holiness. So God is perfect. He has never sinned. He never will sin. The word holy means set apart from sin. And because that's who he is, and because we are made in his image, that is why we should be sanctified. That is why we should pursue holy lives, turning away from sin. Now, like I said last Sunday, there are some very powerful and very difficult verses in the Bible that talk about this. One of them is 1 Peter 1.16, where God says, Be holy, because I am holy. That's God's standard. His holiness. God doesn't say, well, I recognize that the people around you are pretty unholy, so if you could just stay away from at least a little bit of that, that would be good enough for me. That's not what God says. He says, be holy because I am holy. So that's our standard here. Our standard isn't the people around us. Our standard is the perfection of God. And the cool part about this is that God is at work in us to make us holy because that's his will that we would be sanctified. Now, it also says there, like I've mentioned, that we are to avoid sexual immorality. The, the Greek word, I'll just, I don't always do this here, but I'll give you one today. The Greek word behind sexual immorality is the word porneia. Now you might recognize that word. It's the root word where we get the word pornography. So pornography would just be images of porneia, images of sexual immorality. One of the ways that I understand this, this word porneia or sexual immorality is that it, it encompasses anything that would be out of bounds in regard to sex. So God created sex and he created it to be good, but uh, we would twist it into something that is evil. And that's what porneia is. Uh, a couple of quotes here. One is from a pastor theologian named James Grant. He said, God designed sexual activity for a male and female inside the covenant bonds of marriage 
And in that context, we should rejoice and be thankful in God's gift to us as husband and wife. So again, on that line of thinking, we recognize God made something good, but the world has has messed it up. And, And here's where we just need to think about the first three chapters of the Bible. God created the Garden of Eden, and he created Adam and Eve to live in it, and it was perfect. They had perfect fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with each other, but then they were tempted and they went into sin. And when sin came into the world, trouble came with it. And and that's what we see in regard to sex. So God gave us a, a good gift, but we, through sin and unholiness, have twisted it into something that is not good. Here's another quote from pastor theologian John Stott. He said, Although we recognize that sex is a good gift of a good creator, we also know it has become twisted and distorted by the fall so that our sexual energies need to be rightly channeled and carefully controlled. Now just a a fun side note here. John Stott was single for his entire life and I believe he passed away not long ago. Um, So I'm going to have a a message for those of you who are single in here uh, based off of some of the words that John Stott has said because this message isn't just for people who are married. Um, I I like how John Stott in this quote used the word twisted, so I'm just going to underline it there. That's again one of the ways that I understand this word porneia is that it is a twisting, that God gave us something good and we in sin and unholiness would twist it into something that is not good. And our world has bought into all sorts of those twisted ideas. As a result, there is so much sexual immorality around us, and we are tempted by it. Because of that, Paul addressed that topic, and in verse 4 he said that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now just a quick note there, some of your translations might say should learn how to acquire a wife in a way that is holy and honorable. It's actually difficult to know which one is the right translation, but either way, what we're talking about here is that there's a right way and a wrong way to view marriage and sex. The right way is that there's only one God-ordained way to experience sex that is in marriage between a man and a woman. And then in verse 5, it talks about the wrong way to view sex. It says, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Passionate lust is a phrase that talks about simply following the desires of the flesh or the desires of this world, the the natural pattern of this world, you could say. And and here's where I want to say, just because it's the natural pattern of this world, that doesn't mean that it's right. Have you ever heard this, this argument that says, well, look at what the animals do, and, and I'm just an animal that's evolved a little bit more. Well, we understand where people are coming from that. They've come up with a worldview in which they don't need God as the creator, and they don't need God as the one who leads us and guides us today. But for those of us who know God, we know that that's all hogwash. We know that God created us, that we wouldn't exist without him, and that we are different from the animals. And I think everybody knows that. I think that people who would say that we're just a slightly more evolved animal, they know that that's not the case. We all know there's something different between us and a dog or us and a chimpanzee or whatever it is. We know there's something different. And what I would say is it's the image of God. It's that fingerprint of God on our heart that when we do something wrong, we know we've done something wrong. The animals don't know that they're doing anything that, that would be wrong for us because it isn't wrong for them. They're just animals, but we're not. We're not animals, so we shouldn't just follow those animal desires. And I think that's that phrase, passionate lust, I think you could, could say it's probably very similar to animal desire. But it says here that we're not to live like that, like the heathens who don't know God. 
Let's stay on that topic of lust a little bit. Jesus explained it for us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the root of the problem here is lust. Again, God made sex and he made it for good reasons, but we would twist it into something that it shouldn't be. Sex is good inside of the marriage covenant, but outside of that, it is not good. Lust, then, is an evil desire for something that God hasn't given us. Lust would be to say, God, I know there's this gift out there that you give to some of your people, and I want it, so I'm going to go get it. But it's, if it's not inside the marriage covenant, it's not something that God is giving to us. Now, lust can play itself out in all sorts of ways. It can be a physical relationship outside of marriage, whether we're talking adultery, so that would be a, a person who's married and they transgress that marriage covenant, or it could be fornication. That would be uh, people who aren't married and, and they're having sex. So either way you slice it, it still falls into that same category of lust and sexual immorality. But lust can also happen in your mind, engaging in fantasies. Lust can also happen with your eyes on a computer screen or a magazine. And, and let me talk here a little bit about pornography. Pornography is a huge, twisted industry. I came across a survey this week, and, and who knows what the actual numbers are. Every time you see a survey, you kind of have to think, okay, is that really the case? But whatever the case is, whatever the numbers are on this one, they're too high. But let me, let me show you the numbers. Let me tell you the numbers that I heard this week. This was a survey, by the way, done of people in church. So these are people in church answering these survey questions. It says that 68% of Christian men view pornography regularly. And let me just tell you, that should not be. That should not be. Uh, the number is 50% for pastors. That shouldn't be. And it's 30% for women. It's not just a man problem either. And do you know who the worst offenders are in this? This should maybe shock some of us. Boys aged 11 to 17. Parents, you better know what your kids are doing online. Please know that when it happens, if it's, if it's just on a computer screen or just in a magazine, it's still lust. This world would tell us that what we do in private doesn't matter. You're not harming anybody. Well, that's not true. That is not true because we were made in the image of God and those things have ramifications that we do. And, and let me say something else about the pornography industry. Uh, and for any of you who might be caught up in it, I, I almost feel like um, after I say this, I would want to slap you in the face and say, you need to get away from it. Because think about this. Every, every click that you do, every time you engage in anything, any movie you watch that has nudity in it, you are feeding that industry and what happens? When the demand goes up for that industry, what happens economically? Supply goes up. What does it mean that supply goes up? It means that they're looking for more and more women to be their models. It, mean, it means that more and more women are getting into the sex trafficking industry, which should appall every single one of us. So please know that that, that harmless click that you do on the Internet is not harmless. It is damaging lives and making them broken. And it's, and it's hurting your soul, too. So um, I don't usually speak like this at church, but I just want to tell you, you've got to get away from it. It's hurting you, and it's hurting those around you. It's, it's hurting those that are close to you, and it's hurting people you don't even know. So get away from it. Uh, one other thing, one other stat. 
In 56% of divorce cases, pornography is cited as a contributing factor. Lust does not lead to satisfaction. That's the false promise that it comes with, but it doesn't lead there. And by the way, every time you engage in lust, do you know what you're doing? You're, you're rewiring your brain to do it again. I've seen lots of, lots of things on that, that every time we go down that path, we're just teaching ourselves how to do it again. And it's destructive. It is a twisting of God's good plan. It harms you and it harms others. And that's why verse 6 says and it, that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Do you see why I said what I just said? We are not to harm our brothers or our sisters in Christ with what we do. It goes on to say, the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Please know that, that God is not pleased about these things. Um, there's this story. It's this, sometimes the Bible has terrible stories in it. Uh, they're good because we can learn from them, but they tell of, of wicked things. And one of those stories is a story about one of David's sons who was filled with lust for his brother's sister, and if I'm reading that right, it probably means that she was a half-sister. He was filled with lust for her. All he could think about was, was her. And finally, he came up with a plan where he could get her alone, and, and he raped her. But do you remember what happened, what it says immediately after he raped her? Does anybody know this one? He hated her. He, it says he hated her even more than, than he lusted after her. Isn't that telling to us that Lust does not bring about what it promises. It, it might feel good at the time, but it does not bring about the godly life that God desires. So we are not to wrong our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, that message of no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him, I believe that applies within marriage as well. Just because you're married, that doesn't mean that you get to assert your own will in the bedroom. Uh, the, the best advice I would have on that is that, that sex should be a mutual thing and the way that you figure out if it's mutual, mutual is that you talk about it. So the, the way that it should go is that, that both partners in the, in the marriage are, are talking about, about sex and each one is looking to the interests of the other. And that might mean that sometimes uh, you might say okay because the other person says yes and it might mean that the other times you say maybe we shouldn't now because the other person doesn't want to. But it should be mutual and it should be filled with communication. Okay, then it says in verse 7 that we are not called to be impure but to live a holy life. That's what this is all about. God wants us to live holy lives. And then it says in verse 8 that this all comes from God, from the Holy Spirit. We are to be holy because God is holy. We are to be holy because as believers in Jesus Christ, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we are not to let anything impure or unholy into the temple. According to Hebrews 13.4, the marriage bed is to be kept pure and God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So uh, for those of you who aren't married yet, you can still keep your marriage bed pure. You, you can still uh, save that. And uh, th again, this world will tempt us and tell us it's okay to go that route, but please know what God's word says on it. Okay, how do we apply this part of this message? I have four things I want to mention here. First, if you have messed up in this area, there is forgiveness for all who repent. Please know that. My point in this message isn't to be too harsh on you, although I did say I want to slap you in the face if you're engaged in pornography, which is kind of true. But the good part of this is that you can be forgiven. That you can be forgiven immediately as you take it to God. And what I, what I love about repentance 
is that repentance isn't just forgiveness for what has happened in the past. It is that. But it's also God's strength to move forward in ways that are holy. So please know the heart of God is to forgive you and to give you the strength to move forward with purity. And then second, if you're struggling with lust or pornography, you probably won't see positive change unless you meet it head on. And and I just say this, um, just knowing what it is to be human, that this isn't probably something that's going to change if you just say, and God, help me with my lust, and then you're on to your next thing. This is probably something that if it's a problem for you, you need to meet it head on. And how do you do that? One way, uh, well, we've already talked about repentance. That's a great way. As part of your repentance, though, you might want to talk to another person about this. If you are engaged in lust or pornography, it means you're walking in the darkness. And one of the best ways to get that in the light is to talk to somebody else about it and just to tell them, here's what I'm struggling with. Would you please help me? Um, Remember the movie Fireproof, too? The guy was struggling with pornography on his computer, and what did he do? Took his computer out back and took the baseball bat to it. And um, I don't know that we need to do that, but I don't know that we don't either, if, if you follow what I'm saying. What I want to urge you to do is to take it seriously. Meet it head on. If there's a problem, meet it head on. Ask God for his strength. And, and do something that will help you flee from sexual immorality. Number three, if you're single, please know that God will strengthen you to be pure. I have a heart for singles. I, um, looking back at my life, it probably wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But I, I thought it took me forever to get married, but I got married when I was 28. Um, but I, I know what it's like to be, to be single and to have those passions. Um, but here's, remember I said John Stott, that pastor theologian, single his whole life. He, he told people to redirect that energy into healthy relationships with other people and into service. So if you're feeling that temptation towards sexual immorality, the positive thing to do is to, to recognize you were created for relationships with other people and, and go and serve other people. And he also said that these commands are not burdensome. When God gives us a command, it's not just to, to give us something unnecessary that we have to carry around. It's not that at all. These commands are not only good for you individually, they're also good for us as a society. So single Christians who stay away from sexual immorality are, are having a positive influence in our culture. And I just want to encourage you to keep going in it because you, you serve the body of Christ as you remain pure and as you live holy lives. And, and again, just I said it already, but I want to say it again, God will give you the strength that you need. If you're single, um, I feel for you, uh, but I also know that, um, that God will give you all that you need to remain pure. And then my fourth application, just simply, let's obey God. This is a command from God. It's for our good. If there's any sin that's going on on in our lives, we should flee from it. And and by the way, one good tip on that, if you're struggling with lust or pornography, sometimes it's best to actually move your body away from it. So if you're at a computer screen and you're struggling, maybe you don't just click away from it. Maybe you click away from it and walk away for a little while and, and pray and read some scripture. Or if you're laying in bed and you're struggling with fantasies, get out of bed, go do something, read scripture, um, talk to God about it. Okay, I realize we spent a lot of time on that topic. Um, I'm going to be finishing up pretty quick because our next point is not quite as long, not nearly as long as that first point. Uh, But just again to say on the topic of sexual morality and lust, please, please get away from it. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God for the strength that you will need to walk away from it. 
But now let's go on to verses 9 through 12. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So again, in in verses 9 and 10, here's where Paul says, I want you to grow in love. You're already doing a really good job of it, though. I just want you to grow more. And I'm encouraged by that. I, I like this idea that the people in Thessalonica had been taught by God to love each other. And, and may it be true of us that, that God, through his Holy Spirit indwelling in us, has, has taught us to love each other. Now let's take those teachings from God and grow even more in our love for each other. As Christians, we should be the most loving people around because God will give us the strength to love everyone, even our enemies. And in verse 10, it urges, Paul urged them to do so more and more. That's coming from the same phrase that we looked at last Sunday in verse 12, where it talked about this overflowing love. So I had this children's message where God was the never-ending supply uh, of, of water, was in the analogy. And as God fills us, he fills us to overflowing, and then we then can express God's love to the people around us. And I just love that picture. That, have, have you ever noticed yourself, maybe even this week, being angry with people or being short with people? Uh, if that's the case, it's not just because they're annoying or they've done something wrong. That may be true. In fact, it's often true when we're dealing with other people. But if we get angry with them or short with them, it shows us that something's wrong with our heart, right? So what do we need then? We need more of God's love to fill us. So we ask God to give us that love to overflowing. So how is your love doing? Are you meeting deeply with God to receive that love from him? Are are you joyfully returning that love back to God? And as you live in that kind of a relationship with God, are you expressing that love to the people around you? Or have you been short and angry with the people around you? And it's, it's simple on this one. Just go to God and ask him to fill you with his love and ask him to give you the strength to love the people around you. And then as we move on to verses 11 and 12, it it kind of in some ways is a new topic. I considered having it be a third point in my sermon, but I do kind of like connecting it to this topic of love because in, in many ways it has to do with loving people around us. And one of the best ways that we can love the people around us is, is to work hard and set a good example. And the idea behind this is I think that Christians should be the best workers on the job. And, and, and not, not to say that we're the most gifted, but to say that we're the hardest working, to say that we're the most loving as we do it. That should be how the people of this world see us, that they look at us and say, wow, that person does good work. So is that the reputation you have at your job or at home or at school, that you're doing the best you can and you're shining as a light so that you're winning the respect of outsiders? I love that phrase in verse 12. By the way we live, we are to to win the respect of outsiders they should be able to look at us and say, there's something different about that person. And when they start to have questions about who God is, they should know that they can come to us and they can trust us because we don't just say we believe in God, we actually live it out in front of them. So let's show God's love to this world by loving people, by working hard. Um, Also, by loving one another. Uh, This this passage doesn't necessarily get at this idea, uh, but I want to show you a different one. John 13, 34 through 35, where Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. You see how he raises the bar again? It isn't just love your neighbor as yourself. It's actually higher than that. It's as Jesus has loved us, that's how we are to love one another. And then it says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So again, how are you doing at loving others? And if you feel like you're running out of love, please know that God is a never-ending supply of love. He can give you all the love you need. Let's be known for our love, our love for God and our love for other people. Okay, so again, we've been talking about holiness and love today. And the reason that we are to be holy and the reason that, that we are to love is because God is holy and because God is love. And for those of us who know God, our lives should be filled with holiness and love. And if you look back at verse 1 in our passage today, you see that the whole point of this is that we would live lives that please God. So my conclusion today, are you living a life that pleases God? Are you doing this in holiness? And are you doing this in love? You see, the way of this world is that we would live for ourselves and our desires in lust and impurity and selfishness. But God's way, as seen by the cross, is a life of love and a life of holiness. So sin is out of place in our new life. Sin is what Jesus died for to rescue us from that old life so we should get away from it. Holiness should be the way we live at all times. And yes, we will probably stumble again, but that's where repentance and forgiveness come in. But let's not settle for a life in which we say, well, I've always struggled with this, so I'll probably always struggle with it. No. If there's any sin in your life, meet it head on. Take it to God and ask Him to give you the strength. And that's what He does. You will be amazed if you give yourself to God in this area, whether it's sexual impurity, or whether it's anger, or whether it's laziness, whatever it might be, Ask God to strengthen you and he will change you. And your life can be a shining example then of what God can do with a heart that is fully given to him. And then one final note of encouragement. This comes from a... I have a monthly uh, training group with other pastors in which we talk about theological topics. And the top, one of our topics of discussion this week was are we holy or are we sinners? And in one sense, of course, we know both things are true of us. We've sinned. We've sinned a lot. We're probably going to still continue to sin in the future. But it's amazing to know that when God talks to his people in the New Testament, what does he call them? Does he call them sinners or saints? He calls them saints, doesn't he? In fact, one of the places that it stands out he does that is in the book of First and Second Corinthians. We know that those people, were, we, we know from the letters that we read that those people struggled with some immorality. Yet what did God call them? Saints. You know what the word saints means? Holy ones. So when God looks at us, he looks at us as people who have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That is, if you've received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, there they go again, that sinner, I can't stand them. He looks at us, and he wants something better for us. He's not pleased with our sin, but he looks at us as people who've been cleansed by Jesus Christ. There are some amazing, amazing passages in the Bible that show us God's heart that show us that he sees us as his precious children, as his holy ones. And here's my encouragement for you. If God sees you as a holy one, then you should live a holy life. So our motivation isn't just that we would stay away from sin. Our motivation is that we would want to live holy lives because God is holy and we want to be with him in all that we do. Therefore, 
we avoid sexual immorality and lust. And because God is love, we love those around us. In Christ, we are the holy ones. Let's live like it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we are made holy. And we know, God, we know that we did not earn our holiness. We earned unholiness by what we did and said and didn't do, by the things we thought, by some of those thoughts that we acted on. God, we thank you for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we just come before you now, God, and we confess our sins again. As I've been talking about these areas of sexual immorality and lust, God, there are probably people in here who are feeling guilty. God, if, if that's the case, we take it to you. We, we are sorry, God. We confess our sin. We repent of it. And God, would you give us the strength to walk with purity? God, I pray for people in here. Maybe they've been struggling with this for decades. God, I pray that today would be a day they can mark on their calendar as a day that things change because you are bringing about that change as they submit to you. So God, I pray for those people who feel stuck in their sin or maybe even for those people who, don't, who came in today feeling like it wasn't that big of a sin. Lord, help us to know that every sin should be taken away, should be dealt with, Help us to flee from sexual immorality and lust. So God, show us. Show us what's on our hearts. Show us what needs to change in our lives. Bring people into our lives to help us in this. Help us to be pure and holy. And God, in the area of love, I pray that you would strengthen us to love you and to love those around us as Jesus does. Thank you for the great love that we saw from you, from your Son on the cross, we pray that we would have that kind of love for those around us. God, we need your help in both of these areas. So if we're going to grow in holiness or love, we need it to be from you. So we give ourselves to you and pray that you would strengthen us and renew us and continue to shape us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.